Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's epic podcast episode is brought to you by my friends at Blue Blocks, the only blue light blocking glasses backed by real science. Blue Blocks has created three specific lenses for daytime, nighttime, and for color therapy in line with the current peer-reviewed academic literature. They're Australian-made, which means they're top quality, and you can get prescription, non-prescription, and reading lenses as well. To view the range of fashionable and science-backed blue light glasses, visit www.blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X, and use my discount code LEANNE20 for 20% off. Today's podcast guest is one of the most beautiful souls, Sarah Rapp. Sarah is a final year student doctor and runs her social media pages with over 2 million followers, talking all things health, fitness, and wellness. The title of our podcast today is Nourish, Not Punish, Lessons Learned from Restriction to Abundance, and Sarah talks to us openly about her battle with anorexia nervosa, which nearly took her life, but she's battled hard and overcome this all while studying to be a doctor. In today's podcast, we chat through Sarah's journey, her turning point, the hardest part of recovery, how loved ones can help those suffering with an eating disorder, and we also talk about self-care, mental health, perfectionism, and having a defined purpose. This is an open, raw, and real podcast episode for you guys today, so please share it with any friends or family members who you think may benefit, and also please follow Sarah on her socials, which are at Sarah Rapp. And finally, please share my podcast on your Instagram or Facebook stories so your friends and family can see it. And more importantly, I can see it and I can help to reshare it for you guys as well. Welcome, Sarah, to our podcast today. I'm stoked to have you on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to be here. I'm honored. <laughs> I've been following you on Instagram. We've been following each other for years. <laughs> Back all the way to the like OG Instagram days. Yes, 100%. Like what, seven, eight years maybe? Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) And I've watched you just absolutely thrive over the years, Sarah. I'm so proud of you and your recovery. And I wondered if we could start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, what you're doing at the moment, and a little bit about your journey in the past. Sure. So, yes, I'm I'm Sarah Rav. I'm a 23-year-old Australian medical student. And just like Leanne, I started Instagram a while back. And unfortunately, in 2018, I suffered from anorexia nervosa that was very very serious and almost took my life I ended up in hospital but luckily I was able to reach out to supports and I was able to work my way towards recovery to get to where I am today and so I use my platform Instagram and more recently TikTok to sort of share my message and help people who were potentially struggling or in the same situation that I was back then. Yeah, I love that. And you've had such a positive impact worldwide. So congratulations. It's been incredible to watch. Thanks. So I wondered um, if you could start by telling our listeners just a little bit about your diagnosis. You mentioned this was a couple of years ago now. How did you find out? Did you go to your doctor? Did you have a psychologist that you were working with? Or did it just come hit you head on one day when you got admitted to hospital kind of like against your will? 
It was um, a long story and people always ask me when it started and I would say it started years and years ago. Um, like growing up, I was obviously bombarded with images from the media and social media specifically about what I'm meant to do, how I'm meant to eat, what I'm meant to look. But um, with regards to being diagnosed, so in 2018, that was when my behaviours got really, really bad. And I ended up losing a lot of weight, so much so that the clinical dean of the school that I was at or the hospital that I was at took notice, as well as a bunch of other staff and students at the hospital. And so what happened is I was put um, sort of to the side and I was very nicely asked to see my GP for a health checkup, take some time off uni and come back when I was feeling a bit better. And at the time, I was honestly shocked because I was like, oh, what's wrong with me? Like, there's no, I'm like, I'm fine. Like, what do you what do you mean? Take some time off. I'm totally fine. And so I booked an appointment with my GP thinking she'd be like, oh, yeah, here's a certificate. Go back to uni. And she took one look at me. She put me on the scales and she was like, um, Sarah, I'm writing you up a referral. I need you to go to the um, Austin Hospital Emergency Department tonight. And I was like, oh, what is going on? Um, and so obviously she was like, your weight is a bit low. Um, she didn't say a bit. She said <laughs> very low. Um, and she was worried about my health. So I presented to the emergency department. I was in triage for like maybe 12, 16 hours just because obviously it wasn't. Wow. Well, uh, just because, yeah, um, it, you know, I wasn't the one screaming out in pain. I was just sitting in the corner. So that was a long wait. Um, and then I was admitted and I stayed in the hospital for about a week or so whilst they were stabilizing me medically and I had a chat to a couple of psychiatrists who worked there and that was when I received my diagnosis as an inpatient. That is such a long time to wait especially for someone who would have been so vulnerable at the time and you would have just thought to yourself I'm fine like I should just go home like did that thought even cross your mind? It was honestly the most excruciating wait ever because I was obviously like my anxiety levels were through the roof. I'm like, what am I doing here? Why can't I go back to uni? What's going to happen to me? What's wrong with me? Do you know what I mean? Like, I, like, I, like at some point I literally thought I had cancer during that state because in my mind it was just so absurd that I would have, that I had an eating disorder because, and we can talk about this later, but it was never about losing weight for me. So, you know, there's a very stereotypical portrayal of what an eating disorder is meant to look like or what an eating disorder is meant to feel like. And it just didn't feel like that to me. So even, you know, as an inpatient at some point, I remember the consultant on the medical team was an oncology specialist. And I was like, are they working me up for cancer? Like, but obviously um, that's just what he chose to specialize in. So yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of anxiety surrounding that. And I think, you know, receiving the diagnosis was a, but also a massive shock. Um, and there were a lot of negative emotions associated with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely want to go a little bit further with you on that. But firstly, just because, um, you know, you are studying medicine, it's such a passion of yours. And I myself have come from working on the acute medical wards at the hospital many years ago. Mm. Um, and I used to see a lot of, um, you know, eating disorder patients as well. When you said that the medical team wanted to stabilize you, for some of our listeners at home, can you explain um, what that sort of means? Because in terms of some of our electrolytes, they can become so dangerously low, can't they? Okay, so my weight was very, very low. My BMI was very low. But apart from that, I also had abnormal potassium. Yeah, so the electrolytes that you eat, think of like uh, potassium, sodium, calcium, magnesium, those things, phosphate even. So 
they were deranged. And as a result of that, my heart reading, so like my ECG, I'm sure you guys have seen like that, like sometimes that electrical recording of the heart rhythm on TV and stuff. So my ECG was off. And what that meant is that uh, like my heart could have stopped at any second. I could have gone into cardiac arrest. And so that's what the main concern was when I was admitted. So because of that, I wasn't allowed to stand up. I was like confined to my bed for that whole week. If I wanted to go to the bathroom, I had to sit in a commode and they would wheel me to the bathroom and then they would wheel me back. Couldn't stand up to shower because they were so, so worried about my electrolytes. And that's sort of the main concern when people get to such a low weight. And it seems absurd because in my head, I was totally symptom free. I was like, I feel fine. I've been like this for the past six months. But it just goes to show like how you feel is not often a reflection of how sick you are. And I think during that time as well, they were really concerned about something called refeeding syndrome, which Leanne, I'm sure you uh, know much about. But um, basically when somebody is so used to starvation, when you start refeeding them again, their electrolytes can go off even more. And this was something that sort of first came up after World War II when concentration camp survivors were allowed to eat again and they sort of went over or they really, really indulged and their bodies just weren't used to it. So that's um, something that they were looking out for me as well. And that's why I was admitted as well. And so I was working with a dietitian as well as the medical team, as well as the psychiatric team. Definitely. Thank you. That's such a comprehensive um, breakdown of yeah everything that does happen. And I think for a lot of people, yeah. you know, you, you'll hear them say their story, like I recovered, I nearly died, but I don't think a lot of people can really appreciate really what does happen in your body from starvation, but mm. also some of the other types of eating disorders. Your electrolytes can plummet from things like binging and purging, from things like just mm. water loading yourself so much. Like we had, yeah. I remember we had a lady in the ICU once who just started a gym challenge and she drank like eight or nine litres of water and her sodium was so dangerously low mm. uh, and some of her electrolytes mm. were just, um, she just flooded her body and her cells with so much water that she yeah. ended up in the ICU and she nearly died. So there's yeah. a few different things, that, you know, that can happen as well, isn't it? So it it's, must have been quite scary for you. Yeah, and the other thing I suppose is like my coagulation was off as well. So I was bleeding before I was admitted, you know, I'd have just random nosebleeds and they wouldn't stop and I had no idea why. My gums were bleeding. And this this sounds really horrific. And I have to, like, I just want to say that this is the extremes, right? So anybody who's listening to this might think, like, oh, I'm not that bad. Like, but you, you, do you know what I mean? Like, as in, yes, you might not be that bad, but, like, that doesn't mean that you don't have a valid concern and you don't have a valid reason to seek help. So I know we're sort of talking about the extremes and stuff, but I just want to say, like, this is the very, very extreme and you don't have to be this sick to ask for help. Absolutely. Yeah. And an eating disorder isn't about just being the tiniest weight ever. You can actually develop an eating disorder at any weight. You can develop anorexia at any weight as well. You don't have to be teeny, teeny, tiny as well. So I think that's really important uh, for our listeners at home to understand and appreciate as well. So I think the other thing to highlight, especially for parents who might be concerned about their child is sometimes it's not weight loss, but it's failure to thrive as well. So a lot of people associate eating disorders with losing weight, but in a child who should be gaining weight sort of consistently, if they're not, then that's also something to be concerned about. Definitely. So Sarah, I'd love to know from you, if you had one, what was the defining moment for you to just go, oh, wow. Okay. 
maybe I am sick. Maybe, maybe I do need to start recovery. Was there any like hesitancy in your part? Like when you got released from hospital, were you like, okay, yeah, I'm great. Let's, let's go back to uni. Or, you know, did you have your team sort of stall that for a bit and say, Sarah, you're not going back until X, Y, and Z is met? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I was lucky and unlucky in the sense that my uni was not going to let me back until I was cleared by a psychiatrist and a doctor. So for at the start, that was my motivation to get back. Um, in the hospital, I was like, you know what, I'll eat everything that you put in front of me as long as I can get back to uni. So I think in that sense, I was recovering. I was sort of getting better physically um, because I wanted to get back to uni, but I wasn't addressing the sort of mental the distorted cognitions that were going in my head I was like if I look fine then they'll let me back to uni no matter how distressed I was internally and so I think physically that really helped because that meant that I like I said I ate everything that I put in front of me but I did not like what I was seeing in the mirror and you know there was huge huge distress going on in my head and that took a lot longer to recover from so what happened is that um when I was discharged from hospital, I was given three weeks off from uni and I was at home eating as much as I could and doing as much as I could to gain weight. I was also seeing my psychologist then, but at the same time, I was um, being worked up for a day program at like one of the Austin's day program for eating disorders. So I was being worked up for that. Now, I was fighting really, really hard to get back to uni and I was seeing like the professional, like the staff members associated with determining if I was healthy enough to get back to uni. And so what they did is they actually, they got an external psychiatrist to evaluate me. Unfortunately, the psychiatrist thought that I was too sick to go back to uni. And so that meant that I had to take the entire year off because in med, it's like, it's not semesters, it's the whole year which meant that I had to take the entire year off. And that honestly like broke my heart. And so when I found out that I was not be- going to be able to go back that year, my recovery stalled a lot just because I was like, like, why am I doing this? And that was when I really, really had to work with my psychologist to sort of one more to getting better than just so I can tick boxes and get A's in university. I'm doing this so that I can like, actually live the rest of my life and I also had to work with her to focus on the right reasons for recovery at the time I was so so sad that I wasn't going back to uni but I think that really having that year off probably made a huge difference and like I could have relapsed super easily but having that year off gave me the tools that I needed to be where I am today if that makes sense yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I think it's really, again, important, maybe if we have that quick discussion around um, just your cognitive ability at a really, really low body weight, because I know that when I used to work in the hospital, a lot of, um, you know, doctors and psychologists, um, also psychiatrists wouldn't allow some patients capacity. So they weren't actually allowed to make decisions for themselves. So a lot of very low body weight patients wouldn't actually be able to self-discharge because cognitively, when your body is that starved, you actually can't make proper decisions for yourself. So did you find that, I mean, coming out the other side now and fully recovered, did you find that some of those thought processes were really, really, really hard initially when you were at such a low body weight? So I've done like research into a lot of things. And when a, when someone's body is put into starvation, they develop very, very um, 
OCD tendencies. So if anybody who doesn't know what that means, like obsessive compulsive tendencies. And I just want to pre- um, preface this by saying I'm not like a psychiatrist. So what I'm talking about is from my own research, um, but like this isn't medical advice and please do your own research. But um, what happens is that the lower weight that you get, the easier it is to become just like regimented in your thinking. So for example, when I was really, really sick, it was so easy for me to force myself to run every day, an absurd amount every day until my feet were bleeding. But now that I'm at a healthier weight, it's like in some ways that's a good thing. So when I was really sick, like I had to do it. Like there was an overwhelming urge for me to run, to restrict my calories. Even studying was like, I have to do this. I have to study for like nine hours a day. It was so you're absolutely right. When when your body is so malnourished, your brain just doesn't function. And what is it does is it clings to like what it knows. And obviously anorexia as well is very, very much tied to depression. Because your body is so starved, you can enter like a depressive state. It can mimic like actual depression, but it's secondary to the body being in starvation. It seems weird because these patients, especially me, like I seemed so cognitively intact. Like if you asked me what are the steps of the Krebs cycle, like like I could have given it to you. You know, if you asked me to remember something, I could have, but it's the judgment and the insight that's impaired. And that's why sometimes you have to, unfortunately, make decisions for them that they might not appreciate at the time, but like looking back, probably Yeah, absolutely. And I have heard you say so many times just through your socials that, you know, recovery was one of the hardest things that you've ever had to do. For our listeners at home who may be in the early stages of recovery or really, really suffering from an eating disorder or knowing a loved one that is, what was the thing that got you through? Was there one thing that really got you through in terms of that struggle and that recovery or was it a whole whole bunch of things? It was a whole bunch of things. Like I said, originally it was getting back into uni, but then it was like, family as well friends everything social media was a huge support at that time instagram you know my followers really really they showed outpouring of support and it was just like thinking about my future because i remember days when i was sick and i just remember thinking like i can't do this for the rest of my life like i remember thinking that and then i remember thinking like well then i either have to end my life or i have to get out of this do you know what i mean and so during that recovery, it was like, I don't want to go back to where I was because I can't sustain that. And so just thinking like there is a better future ahead of me, that was probably what I was fighting for. That's a really pivotal, even just thought process. Like I have to either end my life or, or get out of this. Um, that's, yeah, that would have been really, really tough to deal with. This is obviously a very deep, dark topic. It was ideation. There was never like, it was just the thought that crossed my mind. Like I, I was never going to act out on it, but it was just like, I can't do, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I do hear, you know, a lot of um, people who have struggled a lot with eating disorders or just those really negative thought patterns in the past. Um, you know, I sort of hear even from clients these days when they have this really negative self-talk and negative body image sort of talk, and they feel like, if for them to recover or for them to get better, that talk will go away. Do you feel like that has, because I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of clients and I sort of say to them, you know, those voices, they might never go away, but you'll get stronger. You'll get stronger in terms of reframing them. You'll get stronger in terms of not listening to them. You'll get stronger in terms of going, 
that's a voice and that's a thought in my head, but that doesn't make it a truth. Do you feel like that now? Do you feel like, obviously, I don't know if you want to sort of call it like that voice in your head that was telling you to do these things. Do you feel like those thoughts are still there some days or all days? Or do you feel like once you do fully recover, they do totally go away, which a lot of people sort of think. So I think I'm getting better at them. So they're definitely still there. And I think to think that like I would never fully recover because I'd always have those thoughts. But where I am today, I recently put on quite a bit of weight and that was outside of my recovery. So that wasn't like doctor prescribed or anything. It was just lockdown happened and I was getting stronger at the gym and I was like, well, that's fine. And what I've realized is that like I like what this weight allows me to do and I've realized that my weight doesn't make me any less effective at what I'm doing at the hospital. My weight doesn't let me make me any less of a good friend you know, to my friends, my, my weight doesn't let me make me any less of a person. So I think when I was recovering, I was definitely still having those thoughts that was like, oh, you should go for a run or, or you just ate, you just ate a cookie. You have to, you know, skip dinner or something like that, but you get stronger. You definitely get stronger and you get better at reach. You, you have things in, you develop, and that's why psychotherapy is so important for recovery because you put things into place that stop you from acting out on those thoughts. Because, for example, like I I will always know how many calories are in a banana because I Googled that when I, because I was tracking when I was, you know, sick. And so when I eat a banana now, I might know how many calories are in it, but it doesn't matter to me anymore. There are times I know, especially when I get stressed or when things around me aren't going well, that I tend to, those thoughts tend to be more often, but I'm getting a lot better at just pushing them to the side and knowing that that is my eating disorder talking and that I can't let that stop me from being who I am and stop me from what I'm doing and where I am today. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, like, so now I noticed that like my clothes fit a little bit tight and they might not look as nice on me anymore, but I literally just say, well, who cares? Do you know what I mean? Like I can wear a dress that I don't think I look as nice in, but I'm going to go out and nobody's going to know the difference because like I know that it's just in my head and nobody's going to treat me any different. And just because the dress fits tightly or maybe just because I have to move a size up, like recently I actually just asked Gymshark, like instead of sending me XS, can you send me S? That was huge for me. And I was like, in the past, I would have been appalled. I'm like, oh, God, I'm no longer an SS. But now I'm like, yeah, heck yeah. Like, that means I'm getting stronger at the gym. I'm just getting more confident with my body as it is. And so I think you get better at it. It gets better. You just have to be okay with being uncomfortable for a while. Because during recovery, I hated what I saw. But then I, I, like, I started to realize that it has no impact on any other aspect of my life. And it's also just because you're used to your old weight, right? So obviously I was used to seeing myself at however many kilos that I was to readjust and get used to seeing myself at this current weight. Absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned a really important point for me. You said, you know, when you're tired or when you're stressed, you notice that it's harder for you to reframe those sort of, you know, negative thoughts or those thoughts that are always there. So would you say that self-care from your end is a really important part of recovery? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's 
So one of the hardest things that I had to work on with is my psychologist was not the eating or the exercise. It was learning to be okay with taking time off for myself. My psychologist was always like, but why do you have to study for nine hours? But why do you have to push yourself so hard that you are so tired every night? Why do you have to get 100% in your exam? Why do you have to be the best at the sport you're doing? Because this sounds weird, but like you have to be okay with being average and you have to realize that those things might not make you happy. They'll look great on paper, but do they make you happy? And so what I realize now is that when I'm getting stressed and stuff, I need to reframe it. And I'm like, well, hang on. Do I really need to be pushing myself this hard? Or can I dial it back a bit, catch up with friends, take an afternoon off and actually be happier by doing those things? So, yeah. I think self-care is absolutely so important in any shape or form for recovery, for just life in general. Yeah. I'm interrupting our podcast for a healthy break to share with you today's podcast sponsor, my friends at Blue Blocks, the only blue light blocking glasses backed by real science. If you guys follow me on social media, you'll know I've been wearing my blue light computer glasses daily to help me filter down blue light, reduce computer screen glare and reduce my digital eye strain and also to help me manage my pesky headaches. I've been finishing my workday feeling way more refreshed thanks to my Blue Blocks glasses. Now Blue Blocks has created three specific lenses for daytime, nighttime and for color therapy in line with the current peer-reviewed academic literature. They're Australian made, which means they're top quality and all their glasses come in either prescription, non-prescription or reading lenses. You can even send in your own frames and have the team at Blue Blocks add their lens technology to your frames. And finally, Blue Blocks has a mission to give back. For every pair of glasses you purchase, they donate a pair of reading glasses to Restoring Vision, who then give them to someone in need. That's incredible. These guys are the best and I'm honoured to have them sponsoring this episode today. To view the range of fashionable and science-backed blue light glasses, visit www.blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X, and use my discount code LEANNE20 for 20% off. Now let's get back to our conversation. And I'd love to ask you just in terms of a little bit of a personal question, um, besides obviously your friends and family, who I'm sure were very critical in terms of your success with recovery, from a professional standpoint, who was the most important person to you in terms of recovery from your medical team? And I'm not asking this for you to say, you know, my dietitian or anything like that. I just really want to know, because I get a lot of questions from people who say, you know, I can't afford to go and see a psychologist or I didn't like my dietitian or my doctor thinks I'm lying or whatever it was. For you personally, um, and this isn't from a medical point of view or anything like that but for you who made the biggest difference in your professional team in terms of recovery was it your psychologist my psychologist yeah she was always on my side always on my side but not in a way that she encouraged my behaviors she was always on my side that she was always fighting for my recovery sometimes that meant challenging my thoughts and my behaviors but I always knew that she was fighting for me and the other thing is like um so unfortunately, my the dietitian that I saw, I think unfortunately this goes with like eating disorders as well as sort of like I knew what I needed to be eating to gain weight, if that makes sense. So every time I saw her, she was pretty happy with what I was eating. But maybe that's because I had that medical background. She was great in giving me like options and ideas and stuff. But most of the time it was just to check in. 
so that was that was useful to check in and just to make sure that I was going the right way. Um, but I guess the medical team I only really ever saw in the hospital, and then it was my GP. My GP was the one who weighed me weekly and would check my bloods and my um, vital signs and everything. But in terms of the mental recovery, which supports the physical recovery, I would say probably my psychologist, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sarah. That gave us just such a wonderful insight into just how strong you've been and, you know, how far you've come. Um, and so I want to change track a little bit and ask you a little bit about mm-hmm. uh, medicine and your studies at the moment because you've done so fabulously. What's your favourite thing about studying medicine? How far until we graduate? And um, do you know what you want to specialise in yet? I am in my final year. So if I if things oh, so go exciting. well this year, hopefully I will be a doctor next year. I have a couple of ideas about what I want to specialize in I've always said I would like to do general surgery just because I I really do like being in theater and I also really like the pathologies and the conditions that come up with general surgery but like currently I'm on my gastro rotation so gastroenterology and I really do love that as well and it sort of ties in like um I see a lot of IBD patients, so like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and they often also struggle with weight. So I think, you know, that is something that I can sort of relate to. And then I've always, always, always at the back of my mind, always thought, well, I would love to also maybe do general practice, but then I would like to train myself in CBT so that I could potentially, uh, so CBT is a form of like psychotherapy, so that I could potentially help patients with mental health disorders as well on a level that perhaps my psychologist helped me so there's a lot of things and it's all up in the air but I could really just do anything yeah yeah the world is your oyster oh I'm so proud of you you've (laughs) absolutely come so far so with social media I know that you know you've been on it for a really long time you're across a couple of platforms since your recovery has the way that you've given advice or given out content changed since you've recovered and since you've started really progressing along your sort of medical um, schooling absolutely so in the past my account was literally just primarily fitness based and what that meant as a young teenager because that's how young I was when I started it I was just posting stuff like that I'd see on other fitness pages. Like you have to drink this amount of water a day or you have to do this this amount of exercise or this food is bad for you. And it was very, very much black and white and very, very extreme. And after being diagnosed and my recovery, I was like, well, hang on. That is probably some of the stuff that contributed to my behaviors and my thoughts that landed me in that position and is what caused me to be so sick. And I was like, there's no way I would ever dream of propagating that information any further, developing the same problem that I have. So since then, I've moved away from purely fitness content. Fitness is still a very big part of my life, but I focus now on weight training and strength training. So I do post a little bit about that. But now my content is mostly just surrounded on my life and what what I enjoy, which includes things like, going out for brunch, going out for dinner. It also includes things like where I'm at with my medical studies. And a lot of the time, my content surrounds gratefulness and positivity just because that's who I am as a person as well. I I like to spread as much positivity as I can. My photos 
I wouldn't consider myself like a model or anything. So my photos are very much just taken in my home or taken in my backyard. And one thing I try to do is I just want people to feel happy when they look at my photos. Does that make sense? Like I don't ever want somebody to look at my photos and think, oh, she looks so good. I wish I looked like that. Back in the day, I unfollowed a bunch of accounts that just made me feel crap about myself and not because they were trying to it's just because it was me comparing myself to them so now I just focus on yeah just keeping it lighthearted and just sharing what makes me happy in the hopes that it makes other people happy as well and sometimes I get a bit serious and I talk about eating disorder recovery or I talk about pushing yourself to be the best that you can be whether that means that you you know have to work a little bit harder or whether that means that you have to um, take a day off because there's a balance for me and I think it's a fine balance for everyone else as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Two, two extremes. Now you, um, we've mentioned mental health a little bit and I love that some of the content I am, I like to put out a little bit of content around mental health as well. Like it's okay to take a rest day. If you're hungry, please eat. Um, you know, don't compare yourself. Nobody's perfect. All that sort of thing. How important do you feel like this is for our younger generation growing up and they see these Instagrammers on like private jets and you know with like fancy designer handbags and they think that that's like real life or that everyone looks like that and just the filters that people use and it's like wow that girl's beautiful and it's like we can all be beautiful and it's not just about you know how we look or the filters that we use online and that sort of thing so how important do you feel like mental health is for our younger generation who are almost like growing up online you know it's absolutely so important because like you said uh, social media is just a highlight reel and it's hard for them to realize that not every day is going to be going out and eating brunch. Not every day is even going to be going to the gym and training. Like, And I think that's probably something that I didn't realize in the past and that was why I was so, so, so obsessed with this idea of perfection that I had to work out every day, that I had to eat a certain way because there was no room for imperfection in my life. So I think it's so, so important to share the days when you don't look your best or the days when you have no makeup on or the days when you're not using a filter, just so that people realize. The reason why people don't obviously do that is because, you know, influencers' whole careers are built on looking good and getting a certain number of likes and stuff. So I, I totally understand it from both points of view, but I think if you're following someone who makes you feel like crap, unfollow them or mute them they don't you don't they don't even have to know that you unfollow them just mute them us as info like you and me as creators have a responsibility to keep it real and to especially on tiktok where we have such a young impressionable following mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think it's our responsibility to keep it real and to show them that there is a side where we don't want to get out of bed or that we don't want to go to the gym and that's fine Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And we've talked a lot about perfectionism on my podcast because that's something I really struggled with myself for many, many years in my early twenties as well. What was, or what is one or two tips you can, you can help our listeners at home? How did overcoming perfectionism help you? Did you have anything that you did every single day or was it really working closely with your psychologist that, that got you to that point where you realized that you couldn't be perfect in everything and you also didn't have to be? So this is weird and people might find this weird, but in the past I used to view friendship as a transaction. So if I catch up with you for brunch, 
then that's like a, a box ticked. We are one step closer and I'll be able to ask you for something later in the future. Like it, it sounds very black and white when I say it like that, but in my head, friendships were very, very much transactional and I would do something for a friend so that later in the future they would, could do something back for me or I would have friends so that when I needed something, I could ask on them, if that makes sense. But when I was really sick, they just came over because obviously I was not at uni so I was, and was not going to the gym. I was not doing anything. So I had, you know, so many hours of the day to just sit there and think, just think. And my friends would come over and they'd spend so much time with me, even though they were so busy. And I was like, this isn't a transaction. This is like so much more than that. Like this is, it's hard to say. It's like, you can't put a price on this basically. It's, what this is, this friendship is nothing compared to getting a promotion or earning money. It's like, it's so much more fulfilling. And so that's when I realized I was like, I can earn all the money in the world and, or I could be the strongest, like I could be the best weight or I could look the best, but that's never going to give me what I have right now, which is family comes into that as well, but it's just being able to spend time with other people and being able to enrich other people's lives. And so that's when I realized that like I, I'm so done with ticking boxes and I'm so done with, you know, just generating a proper CV. I'd rather actually just be a good person and make an impact on other people's lives, whether that be one-on-one or whether that be on social media. Absolutely. You found a purpose, right? Yeah, yeah. Love it. So to wrap up our podcast, Sarah, I'd really love to, I know that you've given so many wonderful, helpful tips for those that may be struggling, but for some women or men, or those that don't identify as well, um, who are currently maybe suffering from an eating disorder, not sure, not really even having that understanding, like, is what I'm doing normal? Like, you know, having some of those negative thoughts around food, exercise, body weight, if they're too scared to seek help, what advice would you have for them? My first advice is that you don't have to be a certain weight you don't have to be a certain degree of sick to seek help any emotional baggage that comes with food or exercise that causes you distress is enough to see someone about secondly if you're Australian and you go to your GP you can be written up for a mental health plan that gives you 10 visits with a psychologist um, that is subsidized by Medicare You don't have to tell your parents about it. You don't have to tell anyone about it. And you can go somewhere that bulk bills so that there's no out-of-pocket fee. The last thing is that eating disorders don't look a certain way. Males, females, non-binary, any weight can suffer from an eating disorder. And there are many different ones out there. Like you mentioned, Leanne, binge purge, bulimia, restrictive, orthorexia, many different types that you need to worry about it's just if you are distressed about it reach out and finally if you think that somebody that is close to you is struggling with an eating disorder they might become defensive and obviously don't do it in a aggressive or confrontational way just be like hey I've noticed you know you've been a bit stressed lately or yeah you've been a bit stressed lately or you've been looking a bit down is there anything we can talk about If they push you back, it's fine, but at least you are showing them that you are there for them and that if they need to talk to you, that they can because 
it's lonely when you're stuck in that in that space. Yeah, and I think that's such just such powerful advice. And just my last question, if I can put one more little bit of golden nugget yeah. from you, Sarah, <laughs> would be for any family, you know, mums, dads, aunties, uncles, best friends, how do you help someone that you love who isn't quite there yet in terms of saying, I'm struggling, I need help? How do you support them? So we, we reach out and we let them know that we're here. Is there anything else or do you think that there's anything else that would have helped you before you hit that point where you spent, you know, 16 hours in an ED? Would have there been anything else? Obviously, you're so lucky to have a, a school that, you know, cared for you so much, mm. but could anyone have helped you before then, do you think? Is there anything as family members or loved ones we can do if we see someone that we love that's struggling who's not quite ready to accept that help? I think it's hard because one of the characteristics of an eating disorder is not having insight. So, like, I'm sure my mum would have commented, like, why are you running so much? Why aren't you eating enough? You look sick. Like, I'm pretty sure she did comment, like, you look. why are you so skinny? And it was just for me, it was the, it was just defense. I was like, get out, like build build a wall. But I think what would have helped is just like letting me know that I was loved unconditionally, no matter why no matter what my weight is, you know, no matter what my C V looks like, no matter how well I'm doing at school. It's sort of just that like letting them know that they are worthy at any weight or no matter what they do. It's like, well, yeah, obviously they are. Like everybody's thinking that. Like, yeah, obviously my daughter is worthy. She knows that. But does she really know that? Like have you said that to her in the past week? Have you said that to her in the past month? She, You might think she knows that, but she might not. Like your, she or he might not. Your brain plays tricks on you. And so just reassuring that might have helped. Yeah, because it is so nice to hear from any person um, at any stage of your life how much you are loved because again like it's something you know my mum was very much like I love you lots of hugs and growing up my dad I think I got that perfectionism I knew he loved me but I never heard it and I think that that's so so powerful as a young person to hear like it's sort of like you do know that your parents love you like they're your parents but to actually hear that regularly makes such a big difference doesn't it because I used to get A's on my exams and you know it was like I just wanted my dad to say that he was proud of me and he didn't do that he just you know he'd be like good did anyone else get an A and it was sort of that and I'm sure that you may have experienced that as well it was like you you almost never felt that you were good enough I remember crying to him one day and just saying I just want you to tell me that you're proud of me and he just looked at me with this like shock and he was like of course I'm proud of you like of course I am but it's like when you never hear that and as you said some of those cognitive deficits that go with not eating properly and having a really low body weight your mind can play a lot of tricks on you can't it yeah yeah yeah, so I think that's wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Sarah. I know you've got a busy day. I will let you go, but you have given our listeners at home and even myself so much to think about. And I just, I couldn't thank you enough for coming on this podcast. You're an absolute angel and you're an inspiration to all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, like, I honestly really appreciate you giving me the platform to spread my message. And I know that the stuff we've talked about, like, it can be quite confronting, but I also just want people to realize that it's fine to talk about this stuff. Mental health is nothing to be ashamed of. You know, we all suffer with a little bit of things here and there. And if we speak up about it, we make it less taboo so that we can help people who are suffering get help. And so I encourage anyone who's listening to this to keep talking about it. 
So important, so important. And Sarah, where can our listeners, where can they reach out to you? Where can they find you? Where can they follow you on Instagram, TikTok? What's your website like? Awesome. So my main social media is Instagram and TikTok and it's just at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Rav, R-A-V. Apart from that, I'm pretty much in the hospital all day. So um, reach out to me then, um, but I always make time. Like I do respond to all my DMs. um, So you can send me anything at any time and I will always do my best to put you in touch with the right services and the right supports. Wonderful. Angel, you're an angel, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on today. And, um, you know, I hope Thank to have you, you back once you, you're you a fully graduated doctor, you're you're choosing your pathway. I think it would be so lovely <laughs> to chat about, yeah, just your, your journey again and, and what you're seeing, you know, as a qualified doctor. It would be amazing to hear. I can't wait to keep following you and, and seeing how this year goes for you. Thank you so much. I would love to be back anytime. And our listeners, we will catch you in next week's episode.